Well, thank you for inviting me to come and speak. Um, uh, though as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I wasn't so thankful as the, the text um, was working me over uh, quite heavily. So um, it's been quite an experience uh, coming to terms with what uh, Jesus has to say. It's, it is a hard task to preach on the greatest sermon ever given. Um, but then I was reflecting this morning, it's actually a harder task to pray a corporate prayer in church when this is your passage on prayer. You want to make sure you get it right, don't you? Well done, Josh. Well, with all our modern sophistication and our secular world that we live in these days, there remains an inescapable truth. Everybody prays. Everybody prays. I was in a Buddhist temple in Penang in Malaysia. <clears throat> and you go into the main prayer hall there and there's gold and, and, and things everywhere. But what caught my eye was a small tree. And around the tree were these ribbons, all different colours. And each ribbon had something else different written on it, something like good fortune or well-respected or good exam results. You name it, it was there. And for the price of a ringgit or two, you could buy one of these ribbons and put it on to that tree. If you go to Rome, you might see the Trevi Fountain. 3,000 euros get thrown into that fountain every day. Get right hand, left shoulder, over you go. And if you do so, they say you will return to Rome someday. If you go to Paris, I'm going to pronounce this wrong because I was terrible at French. You might put a lock on the Pont des Arts bridge. Well, so many people did it, they had to cut them all off for fear that the bridge would collapse. Everybody prays. But it's not just superstitions. It's not just these wishful thinking things. It is said that there are no atheists in a foxhole. We all cry out to something, someone, when we're sick, when we're in distress. You know, palliative care nurses tell us that lots of people, even old men, cry out, as death comes, approaches, cry out for their mums to rescue them. Everybody prays. The problem is we just don't pray effectively. A lock on a bridge or a ribbon on a tree or a coin in a fountain really doesn't change anything. And a long dead mum can't save you from death. Only the God of the universe can truly make a difference. But even when you're praying to the God of the universe, you can pray ineffectively. It's possible to think that I'm an amazing prayer, to go along to church for years, to make all the right sounds, and for your prayers to go no further than the ceiling, for your prayers not to be heard, in heaven. And so today, do you want 
an effective spiritual life? Do you want to have a rich prayer life? Then listen to Jesus. We're going to want to discover that an effective prayer life, an effective prayer, is understanding that our understanding truly our relationship to God. And so if you're going to pray to the God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, we need to pray in a way that reflects who he is, who we are, and how we should therefore approach him. We're going to have to look at what Jesus has to say. So how about we pray, shaking in our boots as we do, but pray um, and try to understand what Jesus is saying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his instruction of how to pray. We ask, Lord God, that we would take heed, that we would listen, that we would learn, not so we would know more, but so that we could live for you all the more. Help us to pray effectively. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing to see in our passage, and I hope you saw it, is there's two basic parts to this passage. There's the how not to pray section, and then there's the how to pray section. Fairly easy, fairly straightforward. First, how not to pray. Verses 5 to 8. And there's two examples that Jesus gives of how not to pray. The hypocrites and the pagans. Verse 5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite, we hear that word and we think someone who is duplicitous. Or, but it's really just a word that means an actor. Someone who pretends to be something that they're not. Don't be a hypocrite, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and street corners so they can be seen by others. The hypocrite is pretending to be religious. They're pretending to be a spiritual elite. A hypocrite has a problem of pride. They believe that the audience, the people around, is more important than the audience of one, God. And so prayer becomes the performance And if you're praying to impress other people, then Jesus says you've already received your reward. Well done. Now that feels pretty good at first, but realise the magnitude of things you're missing out on. Because in verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room Close the door and pray to your father who is in secret. The idea that the word for room here, the idea is you go into the place in your house that has no windows, nothing external can see in. You close the door so no one can see what you're doing. Now, this isn't literal. You don't have to go home today, convert your closet into a pray room and, you know, throw all the the clothes on the bed and, well, that's just what Jesus says. No, he's exaggerating, as Jesus was wont to do. He could have said, go into a field and dig a hole. He could have said, you know, go find a bush and hide in it. The concept is clear. Prayer is all about the audience of one. 
the Father who is in secret. It's not so much about God being invisible or hard to see. It's about God being the one who is the master of the hidden things. As Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And so God will reward the things done in secret. People reward performance. God rewards what is done for him and what is done for him in secret. And prayer is a reflection, therefore, of our, our relationship with God. We come to him not to big note ourselves, but we come to him humbly. We want to seek him and his audience alone. Secondly, we shouldn't be like the pagans. And when you pray, verse 7, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They come up to Mount Carmel for the prey-off of the ages. The Baal prophets go first. They cry out, O Baal, answer us. They dance around, they shout, they slash themselves with swords. But the point is made. No one responded. No one answered. No one paid attention. You see, the prayer of the Baal worshippers reflects their view of God. In their mind, Baal is disinterested in the human affairs. He must be impressed by dancing and yelling and cutting yourself. Pagan gods don't regard people. They don't have any interest in people. So you have to grab their attention. And so in Jesus' day, the pagans babble. They make a lot of repeated meaningless noise with their mouths chanting, reciting set prayers or religious texts, thinking that they'll be heard because of their many words. See, the pagans aren't communicating to a loving Heavenly Father who wants to hear and answer our prayers. See, if my, if my kids come to me and, and they just say, oh, Dad, oh, Dad, oh, Dad, oh, Dad, oh, Dad, oh, Dad, I really want, 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 want. I am over it. Get to the point. Ask me what you want. I probably will give it to you. But that's the idea. You need to get the attention of the God. They don't have any assurance that their God is listening or cares. And if we doubt that God is listening to us, if we aren't sure of his love for us, then we might be tempted to multiply our words, to use set repeated structures, the right phraseology and the, the right words here. And we want to impress God with our words, the right things to say. But Jesus says, verse 8, don't be like them. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. He answers you not because you use the right exact phrase or you pray in a particularly clever way or because, no, it's because he's your heavenly father. 
He loves you. He loves to answer his children's prayer. He knows what you need even before you ask him. Now, if you are a certain type of logical thinker, like me, you read this and you go, huh, so God already knows what I need before I ask him, right? Well, therefore, I don't need to pray. God already knows. You might even be uh, a terrible, wicked person like me who convinces himself that it's because of his good theology that he doesn't need to pray. Two things. Firstly, this fatalistic idea that God has set everything up in motion and from eternity past to eternity future isn't Christianity. That's not how God has revealed himself. We've got a word for that. It's called deism. And they're very big on it a few, years, a few centuries ago. We don't live in a set and forget automatic universe where God has no power to change things. No, we pray to a powerful God. He works sovereignly in all things for our good. And that includes our prayers. So much so that, secondly, Jesus calls on us to pray. Did you notice that on the way through, Jesus doesn't say, if you pray. He says, when you pray. He expects that that's the normal part of being a follower of Jesus, is that you pray. And so it would be impossible to read this passage and go, yeah, but I don't think I really need to pray. Fiddlesticks. We can fool ourselves all we want. We are called to pray. And so it's great that we're not just told how not to pray, but we're actually told how to pray. And firstly, <clears throat> Jesus says, we come to the God of the universe and we say, our Father in heaven. Notice it doesn't say, my heavenly Father. Our Father in heaven is how it starts. Which just goes to show you what I was saying before is right. Jesus doesn't say that the only legitimate way to pray is by going into the, your closet, which has been now cleared out of all your clothes and is now a prayer room. That's not the only way. He's talking about the audience of one. We come when we pray, whether it's corporate or whether it's by ourselves, to our heavenly Father, the God of the universe. And so it's fitting that the first thing that we would say to our Heavenly Father reflects the fact that in this relationship, we are not the most important one. God is the most important one. So we come to him acknowledging that he is the most important one. So if you don't come to God uh, understanding the, and being in awe of his majesty, of the fact that he is in heaven and that we are on earth. If we don't come to him in that way, then we go straight to asking for stuff, right? Get me right. There's nothing wrong with the arrow prayer, 
Have you heard about the arrow prayer? You know, just shoot up a arrow and say, God, please. Nothing wrong with that. But that's all you ever do. Maybe our vision of God is a bit deficient. And so we start with, hallowed be your name. Not Harold, hallowed. It's a bit of an old-fashioned name. Oh, not not a name. Old-fashioned word. Um, And it just means be made holy. We start with a desire that God's name be holy. Understanding that for God, there is nothing more important than his name, than his reputation. And so it's fitting that we begin by praying that God's name would be holy. Not, by the way, that he would make it holy. No, it's not a request at this point. This is a declaration. This is, a, a, this is praise. Oh, God, that your name would be holy is the sense of it. We begin our prayer by praising God. You know, it doesn't have to be elaborate. You don't have to multiply the words here. It can be simple. But we begin with praise. Then we move, remember, God, important, not us. We move to God's needs and his desires. First and foremost, that is the growth of God's kingdom and its influence on the earth right now. You see, because God's deepest desire, what all his plans and his purposes revolve around and centre on is that Jesus Christ will be crowned as Lord of all. And we live in a world that largely ignores Jesus and his rule. Which is why the world we live in is in the state that it's in. Our greatest need is that Jesus would be seen as Lord and worshipped as such, recognised by all. Our greatest need is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, as it was always intended to be. You see, there is a right order to how the world should be. Not just our world, the whole universe should be in a particular way And that orderedness is what we need on earth as it is in heaven. And so, when you approach God and you have a particular need on your mind, an upcoming exam, a relationship problem, a new job, whatever it might be, recognise that our deepest need is God's kingdom in our lives. We need God's kingdom to come. God is no wish-fulfilling genie who's just waiting to grant whatever our selfish heart desires. Our real needs should come first, and that is for God's kingdom to come in our lives and in the lives of those around us. I don't know why that photo was in that slide just before, but I want to talk a bit about my job. Uh, My job, as I mentioned before, is to see what's called evangelistic prayer teams happen across the country. Uh, Our prayer teams are about seeking that kingdom of God in our lives as we work and in the lives of our friends and colleagues. Anyone that God has brought across our path. 
recognizing that if my job was to try, sorry, I just whacked the microphone. If my job was to reach the work, people in the workplace across the country, then the strategy could be that I go and, and knock on every office door and say, hey, can I come in and talk to people at like Jesus? Um, and the success rate would be fairly low, I'm guessing. Far better to help Christians reach out to those that God has already brought into their lives, whether it be through the workplace or be through work events or through any other means. That's how I see it happening. And the way that we seek to do that is by helping Christians to pray for God's kingdom to come in their lives and in the lives of others. Because you see, mission is the mission of the kingdom of God is a team sport. Uh, God, number one, is the evangelist. He is a star player. And so when we pray, we are asking him to act through us. And he gives us each other. He gives us our team. So we can pray together for God's kingdom to come in the lives of those we know. So often Christians get sucked into this idea that I am the only one who is working in this mission. I am the one who has to bring Jesus to everyone. No, we're a part of a team. Um, and uh, I simply get, gather Christians together in those sort of teams to pray for their friends and their colleagues. If you'd like to do that, if you'd like to pray for, um, for God's kingdom to come in your life and in the life of others around you, I would love to talk to you about that later. But let me just warn you, it is a dangerous prayer to ask God to do what his heart most desires in your life through people around you, because he loves to answer that prayer. And as you see fruit start to come, as people start to talk to you about Jesus and lives start to change, it becomes a bit addictive. So just a warning on that one. It should come with a warning label, my job. But then Jesus says, pray for your daily needs. Just as God provided manna for Israel in the desert, Jesus instructs us to pray for today's bread. And so we need to ask God for the coming day's needs. And I think that's the word daily means. It's not necessarily the, the food that comes every day. It's the coming day's bread. You're praying for what you don't yet have. See, it's not just thanking God for the food that sits on your table. It's praying for the food that is yet to come. If you transport yourself back to Jesus' age, the first century in Palestine, the daily bread was not necessarily a given. You're praying for what God has yet to provide. And uh, <clears throat> if you don't have a sense that everything that we have, whether it's food and shelter or work or education, love, warmth, everything, everything, that that comes from the hand of God, then you're not going to ask God to supply. It's, it's already there. I don't need to ask God for these things. I, mean, I could thank him for it, but I don't need to ask him. But we don't see the intricate web of dependency that God has built into our economy and our society until 
you see a worldwide pandemic. Until you have flooding that wipes out supply routes, until you have fire that devastates, until you turn up to the supermarket and they don't have toilet paper or eggs or milk or bread or... You see, bare supermarket shelves are a reminder that God is the one who provides. Now, he provides through many, many and various ways, through truck drivers, through farmers, through retail workers, but don't be mistaken, it is God who provides. And so we should be praying for those farmers and truck drivers and retail workers. But remembering that God is our Heavenly Father. He loves to give good gifts for His children. He knows our needs better than we do. And so the clearest exercise of faith in that Heavenly Father is to ask for Him to provide what He loves to give. And finally, we end with four verses that deal with our sin. Forgive us our debts, Jesus says. When we come before a holy God, the Lord of all the universe, of the heavens and the earth, we soon realise how fallen, how broken we are. It becomes quickly clear that we need forgiveness. And we have racked up massive debts with God. We need forgiveness as we approach this holy, holy God. Now, if you don't truly understand how sinful you are, if you don't really understand your capacity for great evil, if you don't understand how bent your heart is towards the bad, if God is your loving Father but not, is not at the same time the judge of, the all, of all the earth, then of course you won't ask God for forgiveness. You won't get to this point. And can I say, Baptist to Baptist, we're not good at this. Really glad that Josh prayed through the Lord's Prayer today. Fantastic. But when it comes to time of corporate prayer, when we get together in Bible study, we're not great at confession. We're not great at asking for forgiveness. Part of the, the way that we do church, we're not as, we don't do the liturgy like other churches do, but we do lose something. Um, one of the great things that I have learnt from my Anglican brothers and sisters is that as they do church together, they do do this bit well. They confess their sins. And then uh, the person leading announces that because of the Lord Jesus, their sins are forgiven. The first time that happened, when I was in a church and that happened, it hit me. Wow. The gospel was applied through the way that we prayed. Powerful, powerful thing. Can I encourage you to think through how the gospel needs to apply as we pray together as God's people? Because repentance is not just the start of our Christian lives and then we leave it alone. It's actually woven throughout 
our entire lives. But the real kicker here comes right next. Because it's not just about asking for forgiveness. It's as we forgive those who are in debt to us. So we have to forgive. Because if you have been truly forgiven, if you know just the personal horrors that God has forgiven of you and hold back forgiveness of others, then you haven't really understood your forgiveness. But Jesus goes even further. He says, if we refuse to forgive people, then our Father will not forgive us. Our forgiveness requires a truly broken attitude towards God. Perhaps, perhaps that's you. Perhaps you are harboring something in your heart. There's an unforgiveness there. Please don't go home today with that still there. Please don't go home today with that still hanging over your head. Please do talk to someone. Do business with God. Finally, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We need to have a sober opinion of our susceptibility to evil. There but the grace of God go I should be ready in our minds. Because if we truly understood the dangers that surround us, we would beg God to keep us from evil, to guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. And so we see. Praying effectively means rightly relating to the God of the universe, humbly setting God's priorities before our own, seeking God's provision and forgiveness and forgiving others. And so, it's been great to to peek into your values, and particularly this one, and see how well it aligns to what Jesus has to say about prayer. Let me read it out for you, and, uh, and we'll see. We value prayer and God's people humbly coming before God. We have the great privilege to relate with God because of the interceding work of Christ Jesus. We understand that it is God's world and God's church, and we are mere instruments in God's work in this world. God is the sovereign ruler of the universe and not us. That is so key. Because of this, we depend on him and seek his face, casting our plans and work to him, knowing that he listens and answers prayers and loves to, do, to work for our good and his glory. It just it flows right out from what Jesus has said about prayer. Can I just pray as we finish up? Heavenly Father, I pray that this would truly be true here at uh, HSBC. I ask, Lord God, that uh, you would develop in this church a real value for what prayer is and humbly coming before you, knowing that you are the ruler of the whole universe and not us. 
I ask, Lord God, you would grow here a people dependent on you, who come to you with plans and, and ideas and their work for you, knowing that you love to listen and you love to answer and you love to work for our good. We ask that all would go to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.